Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. Every year, April 22nd is Earth Day, recognized since 1970 as a day to agitate for environmental consciousness and protection. In honor of Earth Day, we are going to expand our historical consciousness by exploring one of the more pressing environmental topics shaping Brooklyn's past and future, trash, and how we deal with it. Historian Elizabeth Pillsbury joins us. You think about the mid to late 19th century, in particularly in the areas of Brooklyn that were rapidly growing, the, the, the lived experience was one of frequently encountering sewage waste. And in our world today, that's inconceivable. We're looking at a couple photos from the streets of, of, of Bed-Stuy, and um, the garbage situation here is shocking get a chance to hear directly from the voices of Brooklynites themselves. I don't know how to explain a, a smell, but it was it was like old garbage. I never collected trash before, but uh, for me, it's like renewing the project. So let's roll up our sleeves and dig into Brooklyn's dirty, smelly past. By the mid-19th century, New York City was the largest city in the country, and across the river, Brooklyn, then separate from New York, was the third largest city. These two densely populated cities struggled continually with an enormous byproduct of growth, human waste. Where on earth were we going to put all the garbage and sewage generated by so many people? Ah, the answer was often New York Harbor which happened to be a place in which one of New York's most iconic foods, the oyster, was grown by a group of Brooklynites who called themselves Baymen. Historian Elizabeth Pillsbury joins us to discuss the world in which these Baymen lived and worked. Beth teaches history at Riverdale Country School in the Bronx. Beth, tell us about these people that you studied who lived in a rather far-off area in Brooklyn, these baymen of Jamaica Bay. So a bayman, literally, if you look at the census records, this is what people listed their profession as. They um, earned their living by farming on land, by catching some fish, and by cultivating shellfish. It's interesting, we don't necessarily think about shellfish as something that you farm. But of course, and today we know that we get our oysters from farms, but in the 19th century too, at the peak of oystering in New York City, shellfish were cultivated. Oystermen would buy seed or spat, really small oysters, 
and would then clear a bottomland beneath the harbor that they would keep free of pred predators and, and, and would keep free of um, sediment so that those oysters could grow and be ready for market. Um, and it was, it was one of the ways that oystermen um, and baymen made their living, uh, this kind of small-scale um, uh, small oyster farming that was widespread in Jamaica Bay. So this sounds like another world from most of 19th century Brooklyn. How does this tie back to waste? By the late 19th century, uh, as New York and Brooklyn were growing, um, sewage waste had become a real issue. In Brooklyn and in Manhattan, the obvious answer was to uh, build sewage lines that drained into the East River and the Hudson River into New York Harbor. But that sounds so gross. Yeah, so gross. But can we talk about sewage in the streets? Yes. Um, <laughs> Let's. It, often it was the more sanitary option. And how is that? As property owners um, connected up to sewage lines, it meant that they no longer had to pay uh, people to clean out the cesspools behind their homes. It meant that those cesspools weren't overflowing into the streets, which they frequently were. Um, you think about the mid to late 19th century, in uh, particularly in the areas of Brooklyn that were rapidly growing, the, the, the lived experience was one of frequently encountering sewage waste. And in our world today, that's inconceivable. Um, we, we, would not, we would not stand to be confronting sewage waste on a day-to-day -day, um, basis. And so as Brooklyn was looking to develop, it was contracting to build those sewage lines in advance of suburban development. So where were all those sewerage paths emptying out? They're constructing sewage lines into the relatively pristine waters of Jamaica Bay. Today, not a single drop of fresh water comes into Jamaica Bay that is not coming through a sewage drain. But Jamaica Bay is where all these baymen were planting their oysters? The growth of the oystering industry coincides with the growth of sewage waste coming into New York Harbor because for certain, at a certain level, that sewage waste is simply providing the fertilizer for the plankton that the oysters are filtering out and using to grow. And so there's this actual nice symbiotic relationship between oyster, the oyster boom of the mid-19th century and the sewage boom of the mid-19th century. That's remarkable. I mean, so our oysters were living it up, basically, off of raw sewage. They were living it up. Okay, but what did this mean for these baymen? Can you share one of their stories? All right, so let me tell you the story about Calvin Huffmeyer. Calvin Huffmeyer uh, was a bayman out in um, Canarsie, uh, which was kind of a small community of baymen out there on Jamaica Bay. And in 1889, the Flatbush sewage line opened up, dumping right into the particular area of that bay in Canarsie that he had his lease um, to, to oyster, uh, his, his lease um, grounds. And he had spent, Calvin Huffmeyer had spent a tremendous amount of money buying seed and planting that seed. And when that sewage line opened, it destroyed his oyster pot. So let's just like have a little moment and think, oh, so this sewage line opens and it smothers, the sewage coming out of the sewage line smothers and kills this crop of oysters that he would otherwise have brought to market. The oysters that lived, 
if he were to have had oysters that had lived, he would have still been able to sell those to market. So he sued the city not because they made the waters unfit to grow oysters, but because they destroyed his product. And he actually wins his lawsuit. What's ironic is that the other oystermen that were just a little bit further away from the sewage outlet were still selling their oysters into New York City's Fulton Market. Now I have to ask you, how is this possible? How is it possible that I could buy an oyster on, at Delmonico's and it could have been grown in sewage? How is this allowed? Well, we're in a pre-Upton Sinclair, pre-Pure Food and Drug Act moment. Um, we're in a pre, you know, 1889, we just are starting to understand bacteria. And health officials are, have not yet connected human diseases, diseases, sicknesses that humans are getting with the consumption of dirty oysters. That's just about to come. So, Beth, were people getting sick from eating these sewage-encrusted oysters? Yes, of course they were. By the turn of the 20th century, however, you're starting to have public health officials say, we need to protect public health by preventing access to dirty food. We need to prevent people from eating dirty food, and we need to survey and figure out the situation regarding oysters in New York City. Okay, but to make a long story short, after several unsuccessful lawsuits by oystermen, the city essentially shuts down the growth of oysters in all of New York Harbor by the 1920s. Let's, you know, let's think about, I want to think about this today. I mean, we're making more garbage and sewage than ever. Um, clearly, this continues to be an issue for New York City and other big cities. In New York today, we still have a major, a major issue dealing with sewage. Um, we finally, in the 1990s, stopped dumping our sewage sludge out into the ocean. Until the 1980s, we were only dumping it 12 miles out. But the government, the federal government said, you know what, you need to go further. So we had to go out to 106 miles. And then eventually they shut that down. That means that there's still a stretch of ocean off of the New Jersey coast that is incredibly toxic, that you cannot go dive in, that this New York City, New York City sewage sludge decimated the coast. But what do we do with our sewage sludge? What do we do with that waste? And it's a real issue. Environmentalists fought to stop ocean dumping, but what do we do with it now? So just really thinking about, I think we live in really different worlds in New York. I think many of us today, we flush the toilet, we have no idea where it goes. Well, Beth, I just want to say thank you so much for coming in to Brooklyn Historical Society and for being a guest on our inaugural podcast of Flatbush in Maine. Operation Clean Sweep is on. Operation Clean Sweep, what is that? Well, I'm sitting here looking at this document um, from our archives. It is a leaflet. It looks like a handbill size uh, with typed text. Something you can kind of stick in the windshield of a car under a door, right? Exactly. And it is from the Arnold Goldwag papers. Yep. Julie, tell us a little bit about 
that collection? So the Arnold Goldwag Brooklyn Congress of Racial Equality Collection um, covers the history of the Brooklyn Auxiliary of the Congress of Racial Equality, our core, for about the first five or six years of the 1960s. And so this was a organization that was on the ground operating to fight all kinds of locally specific civil rights issues facing Brooklynites and New Yorkers in the 1960s. And, you know, this is important because a lot of people, when they think of the civil rights movement, they think of the South, they think of the desegregation campaigns, voting, they think of sit-ins. Right, Selma, Montgomery. exactly. And a lot of people don't realize that um, civil rights, that theater of the civil rights movement was part of a larger, broader struggle, black freedom struggle, and that, you know, the South wasn't the only place that had problems. Yeah, and that each particular place in the country actually had its own particular constituencies and its own very locally focused issues that they were facing. And what is not known by many people as well is that one of the earliest organizations in that kind of direct action struggle was the Congress of Racial Equality, which was founded in 1942. That early? Yeah. Wow. And they actually started having sit-ins and, and protests of uh, in in the 40s. You know, actually some of the earliest um, actions by them were actually outside of the South. And so it's important, this document kind of, you know, brings us to re-examine some of the assumptions we have about what the civil rights movement was and who was involved in the civil rights movement. So Operation Clean Sweep maybe gives us a little bit of a clue into some of the locally specific issues that Brooklynites might have been facing, right? So I'm going to keep reading from it. Um, Today, the Brooklyn Congress of Racial Equality core proposes to do for this community of bedford stuyvesant what our city officials refuse to do clean up the streets so let's talk a little bit about bed right bed yeah. uh by the 1960s had become a very clear definable uh, community um, with a majority African-American population. Yeah, fueled by the movement of hundreds of thousands of African-Americans from the South to Northern industrial cities, Bed-Stuy, something like tripled its population, its African-American population between the 40s and the 1960s. And yet, city services don't keep up and it continues to have the same levels of garbage garbage pickup as it did when it was a, a tiny hamlet. Right. And, you know, some of this is neglect and some of this is active divestment of resources in these communities. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And Coors, the guy who is this collection is named after, Arnie Goldwag, he actually lived in Marine Park, um, which is a predominantly white neighborhood at the time. And he was blown away by how smaller the pop, much smaller the population was in Marine Park as compared to the number of people who lived in Bed-Stuy. So for him, this was the ground zero symbol of structural inequality in New York City. And I think this is also important to point out because a lot of times people saw the the state of these neighborhoods or communities or even today and think that, oh, this is just naturally occurring phenomena. This is just how people live. But yeah, the or truth- even as evidence of their of their own inequality. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That this is just proof that you know the you know this isn't isn't a, a neighborhood that doesn't deserve our attention. Exactly. And the truth of the matter is these are what we're witnessing and what we witnessed um, is uh, these are the results of policies, of planning of historical process 
right, of structural forces. And structural neglect. And neglect. And this flyer um, talks about a campaign on the part of people in the neighborhood and activists aligned with them um, to address this. When the city didn't act, the people did. Well, yeah, and now actually we pulled the flyer, but we also pulled a couple photos. And, you know, let's look at some of the evidence of this. Um, we're looking at a couple photos from the streets of, of, of Bed-Stuy. And um, the garbage situation here is shocking, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you know, these are open, uncovered um, garbage spilling out on the sidewalks in front of people's doorways, of entryways. And there's stoops. You can clearly see that it's been piled up for a significant amount of time. I mean, when I see, you know, open garbage cans like this, immediately as a New Yorker, my mind says, you know, rats. Um, this can create a whole, a whole series of issues, health issues for people who are living there. So you can understand why this is going to be such a pressing issue at the time. Reading on in this flyer, you know, for months, the local PTAs, the block associations, and other civic-minded groups have protested the city authorities about these dirty streets. And then it goes on and says, this is dirty racial discrimination. I love that. I love the combination of the physical, literal dirt and and the figurative application of that to racial discrimination this is a pun intended absolutely right? so what did they do what happens here what is this operation clean sweep coming back to our original question well the these community groups and this these were vibrant local community groups that core was working with got together on a day in september 1962 they brought out their brooms as the flyer says they, they put their garbage in dump trucks but they didn't just leave it at that they didn't just clean up the streets and call it a day they drove those dump trucks and they dumped all of that detritus on the steps of Brooklyn's Borough Hall. Wow, imagine that. Imagine the sight of that. Yeah, and I think the sight of it is kind of, that's the key, right? I mean, they made sure that there were news cameras and reporters there to see it. And I think the idea is, is that this neighborhood, this segregated neighborhood was so invisible, right? And these conditions were not seen by most white people. Well, that's right. So if, if you aren't going to address the conditions, if you won't come and see what's happening in a neighborhood, we're going to bring it to you. And I think that's, you know, th this was a striking, um, this was one of the more successful uh, demonstrations that uh, Brooklyn Corps engaged in during their, their history in, in the borough. Well, I'm so glad you used that word because like, I might even push on it a little bit because what is success mm, mm -hmm. when it comes to an activist movement? So they were successful at getting attention to this. Right. But what's crazy is that they had such trouble getting the Department of Sanitation to make any changes to this, even after this, by, by many cases, successful protest. And it just goes to show, I think, how entrenched mm -hmm. um, these kind of structural forces were, that it took more than um, some really smart, um, well-planned events to actually get the changes that this neighborhood needs. Yeah, and I think, well, so... Uh, you know, I think that's a good question about what makes a successful movement or campaign. And I think, um, you know, there are some instances where you don't have an impact on the structure. 
But another way of thinking of effectiveness or success is the mobilization that takes place. And I think, you know, looking at this flyer, I'm thinking of the labor that it represents and the work that it went that went into producing the flyer to type it up, to design it, to do the layout. It is by no means, you know, a flyer that we would think about today because of, you know, there's no font distinction. They're the only kind of um, distinctive use is spacing out the letters, all caps and double exclamation marks. Um, but these were flyers that had to be typed up. They had to be copied and the style of copying was not photocopying. It was mimeographing. So this is, again, physical labor. Um, so just even mobilizing the resources. And in the flyer, you read about block associations and PTAs and you know, the um, the work to bring these organizations, to bring these groups together, to produce these these flyers. I think even if they did not have the immediate impact um, that they wanted to on this particular issue, um, the benefit of being able to mobilize as a group and, you know, move them towards other kinds of mobilizations. So these are just three documents in one folder, in one box of this enormous and incredibly rich collection that you can come see in the Othmer Library at Brooklyn Historical Society. In each episode of Flatbush in Maine, we get a chance to hear directly from the voices of Brooklynites themselves. In this episode, we'll get to hear from two, Mike Palisak and Rosalind Shear, both of whom worked for Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company that was founded in Brooklyn in 1849. Pfizer maintained a plant in Brooklyn for over 150 years, and in 2007, they announced they were closing that plant, and Brooklyn Historical Society conducted interviews with current and former employees. In this first clip, Mike talks about the actual impact of industrial pollution on the neighborhood. You always knew when you entered Brooklyn from Queens. And it's just an odor. You get in a car. Didn't realize it, but you were really driving into... It's, it, it's not an industrial park around here, per se, but there was a lot of factories around here. So if you go further down Flushing Avenue, two blocks short of the Queens line by Cypress... That used to be a paper factory. I didn't know. But it used to put off a constant odor. So you, you, you're driving to work at 5.30 in the morning, and all of a sudden, you said, oh, I'm in Brooklyn, you know. <laughs> it was a stench. I mean, it was, not, it was a, a strong odor that you knew you weren't, in, um, you weren't in Queens anymore, you know. So when you get into the facility, in shipping, there's, there's a specific odor in shipping, you know. Uh, wood, maybe uh, floor cleaning, like like the oil base that they use sometimes. Uh, you get up to manufacturing. If you go to compounding, sometimes when they're making a specific product, you smell grape, you smell jelly. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's good. You know, it's um, is odors to every different room you go to or or department because they use different materials. You know, you might go to packaging and smell glue. You know, um, cotton. You know, when you open up a box of cotton, and it's a different grade cotton than the cotton ball or something like that, you you're gonna smell it. You know, you'll pick it up. Mm -hmm. Not if you're working there every day, then you forget it. But if you if you enter, 
the membrane. As soon as you walk in, you smell acetone. But after working there a couple of weeks, you won't smell it anymore because mm-hmm. uh, you know, some of it's burnt out. <laughs> when you get away from it, you will. I mean, we have masks when you work with the product directly. Mm-hmm. But the odor will always be there. You know, when, you know it's, it's nail polish removal, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's very strong odor. You always know when you're around there. And um, when you walk into an aqueous module, You'll smell the open dry. The open dry is the the, um, the powder that we that we turn into a, a suspension when we add purified water to it. Mm-hmm. But it's a distinct it's distinct odor to it. So uh, you know you you automatically relate to it. You know. You know if you blindfolded, so open dry, <laughs> acetone acetone, dead giveaway. Mm-hmm. And Mike wasn't the only one to notice the smell. In the second clip from Rosalind Shear, she talks about receiving telephone complaints from local residents about the smell. At that time, there was a lot of, I'm not sure about it, but there was uh, smells that came out of the factory because it was, part of it was factory and it was citric acid. And so at certain times of the year, where it would be just, no air, you would get these odors of chemicals that would be coming through. Um, it would intensify in the entire neighborhood. So, Can you describe um, it? Smelly of, of uh, chemicals. I, I, I don't know how to explain a, a smell, but it was, it was like old garbage. Um, that's about what it smelled like. But it wasn't all the time, it was at certain times either when they got rid of it or because the weather was just standing still and the odors would come through. And I lived about 10 blocks away, so I used to walk to work or take the bus. Uh, And one time I was in the audit department or the complaint department, people would constantly put in phones, your, your, your office building smells, um, <laughs> we, we can't take the odor. Um, wow, so these are people from the neighborhood. From the neighborhood that would constantly call and uh, uh, I would take these complaints and say, I'm sorry, we're working on it, you know, anything to be pleasant. Uh, with that, I would do orders that came in from the different plants. If they were out of certain um, of our drugs, penicillin, um, I can't remember them all, but uh, I would um, call up the plant and say we need X amount of pounds for whatever to be sent to and make out orders for them. Then eventually I got into being secretarial. Nobody of big importance, but um, I got out of that and they, they made a whole new different division for the ordering, and then it got bigger and bigger, and so it worked out differently. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me again a little more about the complaint department? Because those um, must have been funny calls to receive. They were. Um, I mean, some of them would never give their name. Uh, you know, they just want to make a complaint. And um, one of them I remember very clearly because she got on the phone, your place stinks. And those were the words she used, and I said, oh, I'm sorry. You had to be pleasant no matter what, you know. Um, uh, we're sorry. We're, um, we're working that out. Um, 
it's it it's not only Pfizer, you know, um, it's the area, et cetera, et cetera. We give I give whatever excuses. Please forgive us. Um, uh, we're working on it. It will be taken care of eventually, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it wasn't always Pfizer. I mean, the sewer would back up. I mean, it's an old, old neighborhood, and it would just smell. So any smell that went around the neighborhood would automatically be pinned to Pfizer, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that eventually just went away. I, I don't know what they did, engineering or whatever, but um, the smell did go away. You can find the full interviews with Mike Palisak and Rosalind Scheer on the show notes for this episode. Go to brooklynhistory.org slash blog and click on Flatbush in Maine. This week we have a bonus voice of Brooklyn, that of photographer Barry Rosenthal. Barry's project, Found in Nature, started in 2007. His art and his story bring us back around to the part of Brooklyn that Beth Pillsbury, our oyster expert, discussed, Jamaica Bay, on the southeastern end of Brooklyn, not too far from JFK Airport. Barry spends a lot of time in that area, particularly at Floyd Bennett Field and this amazingly eerie place called Dead Horse Bay collecting found trash from the shoreline. And this is everything from polystyrene containers to glass bottles to shoe leather. He uses a combination of sculpture and photography to make very beautiful and very haunting images that offer a pretty pointed critique about the global issue of ocean pollution and our insatiable human behaviors that cause it. Julie got to sit down with Barry and hear more about his process and motivation for this project. You can see Barry's work in the show notes for this episode of Flatbush in Maine, and you can check out more about his work at barryrosenthal.com. I'm here with Barry Rosenthal. How are you, Barry? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Julie? I'm great, and thanks so much for coming on as a guest on our inaugural podcast of Flatbush in Maine. My pleasure. Barry, tell me about this project found in nature and your process for creating an image for it. It's based on... Uh on things I find in New York Harbor. Uh, in particular, I go to Floyd Bennett Field and Dead Horse Bay and certain areas along the, the Belt Highway, uh, mostly Brooklyn, some Queens, but uh, the things I collect, I, t I take everything. I don't edit when I'm out there. Um, I, I try to take a lot of stuff and bring it back and figure it out later, bring it back to my studio. So, Collecting means a lot to me because uh, I've, I've been a collector in my past, and so I have a lot of connection to collecting. I never collected trash before, but um, for me, it's like renewing the project. Every time I go out, I, um, I get ideas. I find new things. It seems like every time there's something new that I hadn't seen before. And so the ideas come from collecting, and that's really a very important part of it. So the other part is it's a very physical job because I take bags of trash, and, um, and when they're glass bottles, they're extremely heavy, and, uh, you know, just it, it piles up. And so I go out with uh, several bags, and I wear rubber boots and, and put on gloves, and I just pick things. So, what kind of things? 
So I started out uh, finding miniature objects like bottle caps and uh, pop tops from aluminum drink cans. Uh, and I started to move up to bigger objects uh, when I discovered what was uh, living at, uh, at Floyd Bennett Field. And it was a lot of plastic objects, mostly, you know, single-use uh, drink bottles uh, like uh, water bottles or soda bottles. And uh, one time early on when I went to Floyd Bennett Field, there, the, that day everything was green. Everything I saw was green, and I picked it within a couple hours uh, more than what I needed for one shot, and that really got me going. Uh, do you find you deplete the supply of trash from the particular areas that you collect in? I go back to the same places repeatedly, and I'm, I'm starting to clean a certain area. And, but the stuff always comes back. There's always new material, and that's why I keep going back. There's, oh, there's a certain irony to that, isn't there, that you are, this is the fodder for your work, but that you're cleaning the areas, but then they continue to to continue to get renewed with garbage. That's pretty poetic. Yes, it's self-renewing. and It seems like uh, nobody's figured out how to stop that, so it hasn't put me out of business yet. Barry, um, talk to me about this piece that we're looking at right now. So the first one that I want to talk about is called Souls, and it's uh, a collection of old shoes that came out of Dead Horse Bay, out of this landfill, and the... uh, the cap on the landfill had, had been broken, I guess, and um, and bottles and and shoes spilled out on the beach. And there was a, a variety of shoes. Some were very old and from maybe the 30s, and they were big, old, thick leather soles. And most of the uppers were gone, and all was left were the, the heel and the sole. And some of those shoes. The soles had big holes in them. They were just worn to, you know. And so I went back and collected more of just the old leather shoes because they had this great patina, this great age, this this kind of, you know, great purpose. And um, uh, so I, I, took it, I took the piece in that direction from that point. When I look at that piece, maybe it's because I'm a historian, it makes me think about workers and laborers and all the pavement that has been pounded over time. Um, I think that's a great interpretation. I like to hear those kind of reactions. What does it mean to make something really beautiful out of trash? I think that it helps make the work be seen because if it was me photographing the work where I find it uh, in nature, um, I don't think it would have the impact. And uh, so in a way, there's, there's the surface, and um, what, I, what I'm able to get is you get beyond the surface after realizing that you know, we're all kind of contributing to this problem of marine pollution. Springtime in Brooklyn, and here at BHS, we have an amazing roster of public programs coming up over the next several weeks. We're excited about a lot of them, but we want to highlight two of them that we are particularly psyched about. 
On Sunday, May 15th, um, we're holding a workshop at 2 p.m. here run by Elizabeth Call, who is a terrific reference librarian who used to work here with me. The event's called If These Walls Could Talk, a house research primer. And Liz is this just expert at mm. helping people use our collections to unlock the history and the secrets of their house. So wow. if you have an address and you want to know more, you can sign up for this workshop and learn from Liz's amazing expertise. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. Uh-huh. Um, one of the events that I'm looking forward to is Amy Goodman's book talk here on Tuesday, May 24th. Amy Goodman has produced since 1996 Democracy Now!, which is an independent uh, radio and TV video show that looks at uh, movements and activists doing progressive work. And she's celebrating 20 years of democracy now, and she'll be here with her co-author, David Goodman, at Brooklyn Historical Society. That sounds really great. So you can reserve tickets to each of these by going to BHS's website, brooklynhistory.org, and clicking on events. We hope to see you here. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Join us for our next episode when we travel back in time to when Brooklyn was known as the Walled City. Thanks to our guests, Beth Pillsbury and Barry Rosenthal. Learn more about Barry's work at barryrosenthal.com. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine on Brooklyn Historical Society's blog. Go to brooklynhistory.org blog and click on Flatbush in Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and information on oral histories. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Julie Golia and Zahir Ali.